It's worth knowing what's really going on. This is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. This is Access Atlanta. Every week, we share some of the best places to eat, play, and live out loud in the ATL. And of course, we go behind the scenes and find the stories that show Atlanta is one of a kind. Welcome to Access Atlanta. I'm your host, Shane Harrison. We've changed the way we do our podcast. That means we're recording it remotely from our homes, but we've also changed what we're talking about in the podcast, since we've always prided ourselves on providing guidance on things to do in and around Atlanta, and because most venues, theaters, and attractions are closed, we're going indoors, and in some cases where it's practical, outdoors to places where it's easy to practice social distancing. The Atlanta Botanical Garden has a new attraction, and it isn't a flower or a plant of any kind. It isn't a sculpture or a fountain. In fact, it's entirely man-made, not crafted by nature at all. It's also really adorable. Just what is this little mechanical marvel known as a slothbot, and what is it doing in the garden? Here to bring us the story is the AJC's Bo Emerson. Welcome. Thank you, Shane. So, the sloth bot, uh, what exactly is it? I think what it's doing is it's just really being cute. That's the thing <laughs> that it's best at. And uh, But it actually does have a function, a scientific purpose. And uh, uh, if you look closely at it, it's not doing much. It's not moving a lot. It's right. hardly moving at all. And that's because it is, in fact, inspired by the sloths. But it's a robot, and it does... It does things like uh, uh, meter uh, sunlight and measure rainfall and observe pollinators and gather uh, statistics about temperature and such. And uh, and uh, I could tell you the story about how it got there, if you like. Uh, well, yeah, sure. <laughs> well, it's... It is a creation of uh, Magnus uh, Eggerstedt, at, uh, who is head of robotics at Georgia Tech. And um, one of the interesting things that he says, he says uh, he dreams up uh, new kinds of hammers, and then he goes looking around for a nail to uh, hit with. <laughs> uh, but that's, that's what this is. This is a robot that was inspired one uh, trip to Costa Rica. And uh, Magnus will tell you about that when we talk to him later. Uh, but it, it, it is a slow-moving robot, and that goes way against the whole Boston Dynamics um, trend of robots that can do backflips and outrun humans and such. This robot hardly moves at all, but it's very valuable for people who study plants. 
Oh, okay. So basically, it sounds like it's a really cute weather gauge, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and it's 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 slightly uh, 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 denigrating to say that it's nothing but a weather gauge, because apparently it can do things that humans can't do. One of the things that it can do is it can stay in one place or close to one place for six months at a time without going back to the uh, to the uh, power supply to get recharged. It's yeah. got little uh, uh, solar panels uh, on top of its head. And uh, it that is, uh, uh, among the other things that the sloths taught uh, Magnus Eggerstedt is that sloths have to move slow. They don't have a lot of energy at their disposal. And he thought, well, I'm not going to have a lot of energy at my disposal if I have a robot that needs to be out in the canopy of Ecuador for, for six months. So what, what, what should I do? Well, let's make it a slow robot. And, uh, and so that's what they did. Somewhat also inspired by the Mars rovers, uh, robots that worked for years um, and right. hardly moved at all, but moved very deliberately and did lots of good things. Right. Wow. Well, it's, it's, I mean, it sounds pretty fascinating, really. And plus, you know, everybody can see it, I guess, at work uh, or, or, you know, probably not doing a whole lot of work. That visible, but, <laughs> this is true. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's on a wire. And in fact, it travels along a wire on, and wherever they're going to put it, it's going to do that too. Uh, up above the canopy walk at the botanical garden, and Magnus said they've um, they've actually tweaked some of its settings a little bit to make it move slightly faster than it would when it's actually being used in Ecuador or wherever they're going right. to put it, um, uh, just so that visitors to the garden can actually see it do something. Right, right. So basically, this is sort of a, a test run for for it. You know, its eventual purpose out in the wild. Exactly. Uh, and, uh, the the um, the origin of, of his interest in this and, and of course, his, he's got a group of students who have also helped him, including one who's a graphic designer who said, you know, this sort of looks like an animal. Uh, why don't we why don't we give it some eyes and a little smile? And, you know, hence the sloth bot was born. But his his original interests are in agricultural robots, which I didn't even know such things existed. But. Mm-hmm. There are robots out there in the fields tending to plants one at a time. And he had that in mind for it, but it's really going to be particularly useful to Emily Coffey at the Botanical Garden, who uh, does uh, work trying to conserve endangered plants in Georgia and, in fact, uh, uh, North Carolina and elsewhere in the Western Hemisphere, also in South America. And it turns out that this thing will be very useful to her to do things like observe who uh, or what is pollinating a particular flower, which helps them to, to determine whether or not they can save that thing. Right. Well, awesome. So so you spoke with with uh, uh, both the creator and with Emily Coffey there at the uh, Botanical Garden, right? Yes. And the one thing I also got to do was to walk down there and look at the sloth bot. And uh, it was eminently worth it, but that was just because I was walking around in the Botanical Garden, which is always eminently worth it. But it's a cute yeah. little robot and uh, one you probably won't see too many other places. Cool. All right. Well, well, thanks so much for bringing us the story. And uh, we're going to hear uh, from uh, from the creator of the Slothbot 
and from uh, from the folks at the Botanical Garden uh, talking with Bo about um, this new little wonder that they have. Thanks well, again, I, think you'll, I appreciate your time, Shane, and I think you'll enjoy it. Thanks. Cool. All right. I thought what you and I might do is uh, start with telling us who you are and then telling us about that strange device that's in your uh, in your botanical garden. So I'm going to let you start off. Sure. So um, uh, my name is Emily Coffey and I work with the Atlanta Botanical Garden. I am the Vice President of Conservation and Research. And what we're working on with Magnus over at Georgia Tech at Atlanta Botanical Garden is the Slothbot. And this is a slow moving robot that is suspended from the trees in um, our canopy walk in Midtown um, at our Atlanta Botanical Garden. And that's a very strange thing to see when you're walking around in a botanical garden, uh, a robot that has a smile on his little face. Yes, it's a pretty um, exciting, um, you know, little invention and collaboration. And of course, no one really expects to see something um, like a robot suspended from the trees when you go to visit um, the botanical garden. But uh, what we're trying to do in the conservation and research department is really push the boundaries and try to find and develop new ways to um, work on conserving plants and doing environmental monitoring um, in really new creative ways. And so we can do that with the sloth bot that is this adorable little um, sloth-like looking robot that's hanging from our trees. And to, to, to explain to folks out there, this is something that you do all the time. You go to uh, the mountains in North Georgia and North Carolina. You go to South America. You find plants that are uh, in danger or plants that are, that are rare that need uh, uh, either some protection or at least some study to figure out how to keep them from disappearing. And uh, that's part of the mission of the uh, Botanical Garden. Am I right? Correct. Yes. So I do. I get to, I have a really fantastic job um, in which I get to travel the world, uh, southeastern United States and truthfully globally, um, working on rare and endangered plants. Um, so we work with these imperiled species and we are trying to um, help prevent uh, those individual species going extinct while also protecting their ecosystems. Because you can't only work on rare plants without addressing some of the greater um, causes that are influencing those extinctions. And so we do work on sort of an ecosystem level um, and with a quarter of the world's plants at risk of extinction, we have a lot of work and we do get to go to these places that are um, sort of amazing and um, often very untouched and remote. Um, and so we, we do get to do a lot of that really fun travel. And now the way that the, the sloth bot comes in, for example, one way that, that we talked about before is you might need to find out how a particular plant is being pollinated, what insect or whatever is doing it, but you can't, stand, you can't hang around in a tree for a week or a month and watch that plant because you don't have time. And therefore, you have this little mechanical helper here. Exactly. So we um, 
uh, first, you know, working in a canopy is not easy. Getting humans up into canopies to observe plants, um, to try to understand what is pollinating them, or um, when even um, things like phenology, which is when a plant flowers or when it goes to seed, we don't always know. And um, especially for these rare species that there are only, you know, a few hundred plants left in the wild at all. Um, for some of these species, we have to actually get some of this really basic um, information. And so what the sloth bot can help us do is it can hang out in the trees for really long periods of time and be able to monitor um, flowers. So when they're flowering, what pollinators are coming to them. And then we can use machine learning to actually analyze those images to look for pollinators. So whether it's a bat or a bee or a beetle, um, or a bird that's coming to a particular um, plant or flower, then we can actually use that to um, better understand some of that basic biology and also understand how we can use that data then to better conserve those species. And uh, your, your sloth bot can do this for months at a time. Um, and one reason that it can is because it moves very slowly. So it does. And what it is doing is it's actually, it, it has solar panels, which um, allows it to um, absorb energy from the sun um, and then utilize that um, in a very slow way so that it's very uh, slow moving. And um, then it doesn't utilize all those batteries. It doesn't use up the batteries very quickly. And so we um, anticipate being able to, you know, have the sloth bot located up in the trees for months, six months, a year at a time, um, capturing this data, which will really give us long-term um, information. And this is, not only is it able to like take pictures of the plants and um, the flowers around and the different pollinators, it can also take environmental data. So it can take um, what we call abiotic or you know, environmental data such as temperature, um, wind speed, precipitation, relative humidity, things like this, which can also allow us to understand what the environment is like up in the canopy because it, while it seems crazy when you look up in a canopy, it's only, you know, it can be 50 or 100 feet up in the air. It doesn't seem like it could be that dramatically different, but it is. Um, and a lot of the species we look at are rare enough that they require those really unique growing conditions that are just located within a 10 or 20 feet um, distance up in the canopy. And so in addition to the photography, um, we also have these environmental sensors that really help us move forward some of that science and, now, and do some, some cool modeling. So the, the uh, Magnus Eggerstedt, who's the uh, uh, professor of robotics at uh, mm -hmm. Georgia Tech, he uh, works with agricultural robots and uh, was was inspired when he saw sloths moving around near a winery in Costa Rica, but he didn't come up with the idea of using it precisely the way you're using it. What talk about when you met each other? What was that conversation like? Sure. So Magnus and I um, met, and he asked if you know we could chat about this sloth bot, and I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about, but sure, <laughs> I'm, I have, I'm like, you know, without having seen it before, you have no idea, and it it is such a beautiful idea. And he, you know, said that he's got this robot that can be put up in the canopy, and how in the world could we use it to 
help save plants and do conservation. And so I said, let, let me think about it. And so, you know, immediately we started talking about the work that I do, um, which is, you know, monitoring these rare and imperiled species and trying to do habitat restoration. And then taking us down, you know, and all, and the amount of time that it takes for our researchers to actually do some of the work. And what we came up with was really utilizing the Slothbot to be like, you know, a person collecting data over a very long period of time, which then allows us to, you know, really change the scale of data collection, which allows us to have greater interpretation um, and we both just were so excited um, because he's got such great forward thinking um, with regards to how robotics can move forward conservation. And we just came up with this idea to put on top of the Slothbot all of these, you know, remote sensors. And then we started talking about our work down in South America. Um, and that's where we, we work with the Lovett School in Atlanta there at their Sempre Verde um, research station down in Ecuador. And we thought, wow, what a cool idea to like have a sloth bot there where we're only able to get down for a few weeks and a year and instead having something that can actually, this robot that can record data for years um, potentially and what amazing, exciting things can come out of that. So um, the two of us got together and we both like to think big. And I think that it was um, a really perfect match of uh, how can we make this robot be really important um, in conservation. Now, in the meantime, uh, you have a, a global pandemic. Uh, and uh, so that kind of uh, uh, puts the plans on going to Ecuador on hiatus. Mm -hmm. So uh, you said, well, let's uh, let's let the Slothbot hang out uh, at the Botanical Garden, which I bet is getting some interesting responses from the people that come and see it there. Yes, it does. And that I think, you know, the pandemic has it's such a such a tragedy and, you know, we're, we're dealing with it in so many ways, but we're able to still continue through modifications, do our work and get out in the field and in locally. And it's allowed us to do a lot more local work. And I think that part of this has been able to get the Slothbot in the garden to really promote this as um, something that, you know, people can see, they can come and understand some of the work that we're doing. So going to the garden, you can actually go and look at the sloth bot and then we're actually going to attempt to put it up in North Georgia too um, as a, a place where we can try and um, you know test it out longer term in a, a wilder environment than Midtown. But um, I think it's pretty exciting because people get to see it in person and they get to understand you know what it's doing and um, we'll actually have some data um, that people will be able to take a look at some just basic simple you know temperature and relative humidity and things like that so um, they'll be able to actually take a look at what we're looking at um, soon um, as we're as we're processing the data as it's coming out of the sloth bot. Now, will, will the sloth bot be able to chat with people as they walk past, or is that that's not in the immediate plans? That's not in the immediate plans yet. Um, it will be hanging out in uh, the trees, um, moving along the cables, and during certain <laughs> times of the day, we can actually um, increase the movement so that it's trying to gather more light as it's trying to find more light if it needs it. Um, but right now it's, it's pretty stationary, um, but in the future we'll, we'll look to um, expand some of that and depending on where we're um, putting it out um, 
for the different needs. Yeah, so, according to uh, uh, Magnus, it's uh, th- they they made it so efficient that it's incredibly boring to look at. So uh, yes, <laughs> y'all are going to speed it up a little bit, at least so people can see it move, if only by right. mic. Yes, and we've we've actually talked about um, having it move a little bit more during peak times at the garden, so people can see how it does move. But <laughs> the the part of the efficiency—that's the thing, you know. We we want it. The idea is that it can last for months, and that's something that you know is is really unusual. If you think about our phones and our laptops' life, um, right? You know how how short we can't even keep a battery charge on our phone for a day. <laughs> this thing can sit out there for months on end. That's pretty cool. Um, so it doesn't, it's not as speedy as our, our phones. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe we could all learn something from the sloth bot and uh, how to slow down a little bit. Especially during these times, it's pretty nice to take a moment to just sit. And I mean, it's a pretty cool, it, it has a very stationary life, but it gets to just enjoy the beauty of the canopy. <laughs> and that's not a bad thing. <laughs> that's a great thing. Well, it's a great thing to get to be able to talk to you, Emily. I appreciate uh, you taking time with us. And uh, uh, we we plan to come out and uh, visit uh, the sloth bot not not too far from now. Excellent. Well, thanks so much, Bo. We really appreciate um, the interest, and yeah, encourage everybody to come out and take a look at the sloth bot. And um, as we get data up, we'll be putting it on our website, so you can take a look at that too. Fantastic. I appreciate that. And you take care of yourself. Thanks so much. You too. So, Magnus, tell me, uh, introduce yourself to the audience and tell them what you do at Georgia Tech. So, I'm uh, Magnus Eggerstadt, and I am uh, the school chair in the School of Electrical and Computer Engineering at Georgia Tech. And uh, I am a robotics professor there. So, I do research in interesting robotic critters. And one of the kinds of uh, robots that you're interested in are agricultural robots, which I was not familiar with before. Talk about those. In agriculture, we're being kind of wasteful with the uh, carpet bombing the fields with uh, with water or pesticides or fertilizers. And uh, there's been this push in the agriculture industry for a while to start tending to individual plants instead. And the only way you can scale that up and do that is to use robots. So people talk about precision agriculture and what is meant by that is is really this idea of being able to target individual plants having robots out on the farm fields to tend to individual plants needs and uh, what that means is uh, uh people that work in fields are going to become people who actually um uh oversee robots is that correct yeah and uh one of the more fascinating aspects of this is if you're a farmer in your rubber boots with an iPad standing on the, the side of a field with a swarm of little robotic tractors out amongst the crop, what do you actually do? How do you uh, manage these, these robots? Because the way it works right now is you typically need a PhD in engineering or computer science to be a robotic operator. Uh, so a big push there has just been how do we build systems that are intuitive and easy to use for for someone without a typically technical background. Now, what that brings us to is uh, the Slothbot, which huh. uh, 
uh, sort of grew out of that interest from what I understand, but it also grew out of an experience you had in Costa Rica. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So I actually, it was five years ago or so, I, I went to Costa Rica with, with my family. It was just purely vacation and uh, tons of sloths there. Uh, and I got increasingly fascinated by these these animals because uh, A, they're cute and cuddly, if you believe you too. But more importantly, from my point of view, is how can they exist? They're, they're sitting up there in the trees, not moving, looking kind of tasty. If you're a predator, if you're a, <laughs> you know, an eagle or a jaguar, how come you just don't eat these things? Uh, how can they exist on this planet? And I, I, was, I was really fascinated by, by this idea that somehow these slow, slow animals had managed to carve out an ecological niche for themselves. So I immediately started reading about sloths and learned about the, the, the strategic advantages that come with being slow. Uh, of course, you burn less energy. Um, turns out that sloths are what ecologists call arboreal folivores, which is fancy speak for they live in the trees and they eat leaves. And leaves are really complicated foods. Uh, they're hard to break down. They're structurally protected. They're chemically protected. Plants don't want us to eat their leaves. We have fruits and nuts for them to eat. Leaves are there for, for the plant's sake. So uh, uh, basically, all animals that eat leaves, is an incredibly long story here, but all animals that eat leaves, they need to have a long enough digestive tract, a big enough gut to break down this horrible food. Uh, so you gotta be big to eat leaves, but there are very few big animals in trees, right? Elephants don't climb trees because they would fall down. Right. Uh, so you gotta be small and nimble to live in trees and big in order to break down leaves and the compromise that sloths struck, and there are some other animals that fill this, this niche as well, koala bears, something called the slow lorries. They're all the same size and they all just sit there doing nothing because they are living such energy constrained <laughs> lives. So energy efficiency, but it turned out also that, that birds of prey, raptors, eagles, they, uh, they operate on what's called optical flow, which means their, uh, their visual system is structured so that they detect motion rather than anything else. So, if you're just slow enough, you pretty much become invisible. So slowness were, was really, really useful to sloths. And this immediately made me think about my agricultural robots. When they're out there dealing with individual plants, you know what, being fast doesn't matter much. You can pretty much move at the speed of a plant and still get the job done. So I decided to completely embrace slowness in robotics as kind of a design paradigm. Because you've got a, a machine that depends on uh, solar power, which if, if it's in the rainforest, it's, uh, a, it's a, a sometime thing. So it has the uh, sort of a similar challenge that, that a sloth has in terms of finding a, its source of energy and utilizing it. That's right. And if you go back on the, on the farm field for a sec, if you're doing harvesting, right, you, you got to be speedy because you're, you have a small window when you're going to be harvesting the crop. But if you're just doing monitoring and checking for the health of the system, there is nothing urgent, really. It doesn't matter if you go from point A to point B very quickly. 
It's just that you survive for long periods of time. Uh, and the, the, the particular application I quickly converged on for the Slothbot was, was doing environmental monitoring under, under the treetops, in the tree canopies. And yeah, the, the sunlight is rather sparse there. Uh, it's dense, dense leaves. It's kind of dark. You don't have much sunlight. So most of the time you're sitting in relative darkness, measuring things. And you still somehow have to survive for months. And being speedy or nimble or optimal, as roboticists like to, to talk about, uh, it really doesn't matter. It matters that, you, that you're just there for long periods of time and that you survive. And now you found uh, a, a colleague who uh, is also interested in environmental monitoring, and that is Emily Coffey at the Botanical Garden. So these these two uh, goals came together in a fortuitous way, it seems. Very much so. Uh, in all honesty, between you and I, a big part of my job is I dream up new interesting algorithms and designs and uh, I build hammers. And a lot of times I don't <laughs> find a reasonable nail. Uh, in this case, <laughs> Emily had the perfect nail. I mean, she immediately got what it was I was trying to do and saw a need for it in uh, in her conservation research. So this really, really worked out well because uh, she could immediately see what the slothbot should be and could be used for for the purpose of uh, conservation biology. Now let's let's describe this slothbot, which right now is hanging from a wire at the Atlanta Botanical Garden, and it has a very cute smile and a variety of. Uh, 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 equipment inside that's measuring all kinds of things. Um, to talk about uh, why it looks like the way it looks and what it's doing there. <laughs> yeah, so uh, the spoiler alert here is that part of why it looks the way it does is purely for, for show. We wanted it to be cute, but but the basis of the Slothbot is it looks like two oversized Lego pieces connected with a joint that's attached to a wire. That's the the, the mechanical gut of the, the sloth bot. On top of that, it has two solar pa uh, panels. So that's kind of what we thought the robot looked like. And then uh, when you're putting it out in, in a place like the botanical garden or any natural environment, stuff is going to happen. It's going to start raining. It's going to be thundering. Leaves are going to come down. So we had to encase all the electronics and the, the actual robot inside a uh, weatherproofed tube, and then we put some LEDs on the tube so that we could know what the sloth bot was up to. So it would change color if it's low on energy or if it's measuring something or if it's about to move. Uh, and as we were doing this, one of my students realized that, hey, it's beginning to look like it has some kind of body. So the tube plus the eyes that came from the LEDs. So I asked one of my, uh, my students who uh, she is, uh, artistically talented to uh, to draw what what this could possibly look like as a sloth and she hit it out of the park and the, the result is a it looks like a almost like a japanese cartoon character sloth uh, <laughs> it's it's pretty cute oversized eyes and uh, i have actually been lurking a little bit uh, on the the canopy walk in the atlanta botanical gardens to hear what people say and Kids will indeed say, oh, look, a sloth. So uh, 
you can tell that this is a this is a cute this is a cute robot that has some sloughiness to it. Well, the uh, 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 Magnus, appreciate uh, you can you taking time with us and uh, the uh, the folks uh, who want to see the sloth bot uh, in action or not really in very much action, I guess, uh, can visit the uh, uh, Atlanta Botanical Garden. Um, isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, so they have a canopy walk, which is an elevated walkway up amongst the, the treetops. And uh, that's where the sloth bot is, uh, is located. And one thing that I didn't want, I didn't want to be for it to be too close to where people are, because then it just feels like a piece of electronics. I wanted it to be a little further away to make it seem more like an animal and indeed it doesn't do much uh it is slow for for very good scientific and mathematical reasons <laughs> and uh, one thing that we learned though is what makes sense from a an ecology point of view and what makes sense from a energy conservation point of view it makes for lousy entertainment so uh, <laughs> we are now actually in the in the process of of tweaking the program a little bit so that during the peak hours it actually moves a little bit more just so that people will indeed see the sloth bot in action rather than in inaction. Well, and you do have to peer uh, upwards uh, a good ways. It's 45 feet off the ground, I think. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And and this goes back to, to I wanted it to feel organic. You know, when you go to the, the zoo and there is a tiger, right? Sometimes you see the tiger and sometimes you don't. And that's just part of the deal. Uh, I kind of wanted it to feel similar where, you know, it should be a treat and a rare occurrence. Look, here's this. I, I managed to see the sloth bot because uh, I do like this idea of thinking of the robots as being part of an ecosystem, really living in the jungle uh, rather than being something that we plop down from the, from the outside. Uh, some of the things that made me very happy about that is... Uh, I've now gotten reports back from the botanical gardens that squirrels are hanging out on the sloth bot every now and then. So it's, <laughs> so it's engaging with them. There is a uh, a hawk that's nesting near the sloth bot. And in the beginning, apparently, the sloth bot was freaking out the hawk a little bit. But now it seems like they've reached a uh, some kind of agreement where they don't mess with each other too much. But, but, it's, <laughs> but it's beginning to be... <laughs> yeah, in fact, you know what? Between us, I would think it would be so cool if the hawk decided to take out the sloth bot. I think that would be <laughs> Well, uh, thank you, Magnus, for taking time with us. And uh, the uh, uh, I look forward to walking over uh, through, the, through the garden again and taking another look at it. There's nothing normal about our new normal, but AJC.com is the same trusted source you've always had. And we have just as much great content, if not more. That's why each week I'll highlight my personal picks for the best things to do, see, and experience. And the stories are easy to find on AJC.com. Memorial Drive, A Daughter's Memoir, is the new book from former poet laureate Natasha Trethewey. A beautifully written reckoning with her mother's murder, the defining event of the Pulitzer Prize winning poet's life. As the AJC's Rosalind Bentley writes, quote, the role of metaphor looms large in this book beginning with its title. The apartment complex where her mother was murdered still stands on Memorial Drive near Stone Mountain, unquote. Read the rest of our review of Natasha Trethewey's new memoir at AJC.com. 
The reimagined Freaknik was supposed to be back for its second year in 2020, but COVID-19 changed those plans, so the fest is receiving a makeover. It was supposed to happen at Morris Brown College, but after moving it from June to September, the event organizers have now decided to break the event into 10 smaller Freaknik drive-in theater concerts. The location and exact dates are still being planned, but the target is to launch the shows over Labor Day weekend and continue through November. Melissa Ruggieri has all the details about the event on the Atlanta Music Scene blog at AJC.com. If you're looking for a story to brighten your day, the AJC has you covered there, too. Our own Bo Emerson brings us the story of Edward Aguilar, the CEO of Paralink, a charitable organization that has become a significant supplier of protective gear to hospitals in Atlanta. What makes this story unusual is that this CEO is only 16 years old. He doesn't even have a driver's license yet. Aguilar and four of his Alpharetta classmates are coordinating production of face shields by 50 different independent manufacturers. As of June 9th, Paralink had delivered 270,000 in Georgia, about 80,000 more than FEMA. Get the whole story on Aguilar and his friends at AJC.com. The coronavirus pandemic has forced every eatery across the country and around the globe to adjust the way it does business, writes the AJC's dining editor, Lagaya Figueres. And, quote, one of the most complicated pivots has been at restaurants built around a self-service model, unquote. The coronavirus pandemic has forced every eatery across the country and around the globe to adjust the way it does business, writes the AJC's dining editor, Lagaya Figueres. And one of the most complicated pivots has been at restaurants built around a self-serve model. Some of these buffet-style restaurant concepts have permanently shuttered, including the Sweet Tomatoes chain. Buffets still exist, but they've changed. See how these restaurants are changing and what the future looks like for buffet dining. Our dining team is keeping you informed on restaurant closures and reopenings at the Atlanta Restaurant Scene blog at AJC.com. The AJC is dedicated to keeping you up to date with all the latest event cancellations and reschedulings. Get in the know at AJC.com. For more things to do in and around Atlanta, go to AJC.com. Our senior editor is Nicole Smith. Podcast edited by Bria Felicien. Music by Bo Emerson and Billy Guen. And I'm your host, Shane Harrison. Join us next week for more Access Atlanta.